When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He's earned decades of Wall Street success, a lifelong student of the market who learned to navigate the world of finance with unshaking confidence, an underdog who achieved the American dream. Now the Fox Business host is sharing all his investing wisdom with you on Charles Payne's Unstoppable Prosperity Podcast. I'm Madison Allworth with the Fox Business Network. I'm joined by Lydia Hu and Charles Payne. We're here to discuss The Unbreakable Investor Pain, your new book. It's very exciting for us. We got to talk to you about your first book. But, you know, with this new book, tell us, let's just start. What are you most excited about? Why did you want to put this out in the world? First of all, I'll give you my background and from a professional point of view. I wanted to be a broker since I was 14 years old. And I bought my first stock when I was seven. I bought my first mutual fund when I was 17. My mom had to co-sign. And I bought my first stock when I was 18. And it was a company called MCI, and it did very well. By the way, MCI later went on to become one of these big scam companies. Two different things, <laughs> okay? The MCI I bought was like this upstart company that was taking on the biggest corporation in the world, AT&T. And uh, you guys are too young to remember, but they used to be antennas on people's roofs on the top of their houses, right? Well, I to, remember them. To watch TV. So he was piggybacking off of those to create a network to go after the biggest company in the world. And I just love the story. I bought the stock, and I did very well with it. Uh, I was already hooked at a young age. So I got in, I went down to Wall Street when I got out of the Air Force. I got uh, a job at EF Hutton, uh, analytical job, and I, I really loved it. But the pay, I mean, when I first got the job, I was so happy. You couldn't tell me nothing, okay? I'm like, 13000 a year? What? <laughs> Let's what? go. You <laughs> couldn't tell me nothing. I'm telling you right now. I was like, what? I was walking around like, yeah. yeah I don't know if you heard, you know what I'm saying? Got a gig down on Wall Street, 13000 So, you know, then after a while, I was like, eh, 13000 ain't, ain't a lot, right? So uh, I had a friend who worked at a firm and said, uh, hey, listen, we got a couple of job openings. The only catch is that it's 100% commission. I was like, oh, boy. You know, I loved what I was doing. I loved the analytical stuff, particularly E.F. Hutton at the time. It was one of the top five firms in the world, at least in America. And what was great about it is you go and you walk around and you talk to people. People love to share their knowledge. You just say, hey, what's that? <laughs> Come over here, kid. Let me show you. Every Friday we auction this off. Or, you know, so they would just talk to me and tell me things. And I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, that was great. Uh, but, you know, it was, again, it was 13000 So I said, you know what, I'm going to give this broker thing a shot. And uh, it was rough. It was real, real rough. I mean, it's congratulations, you passed the test. Uh, here's a phone. We got some old yellow pages. Again, you guys are too young to remember the yellow pages. So I think this guy was a lawyer. I call him up. I read the pitch. And then he said, well, you read real well, but what do you want? <laughs> it's like a eureka moment. Mm -hmm. You read real well, but what do you want? I told him. He opened the account. After I hung up the phone, I tore up the script. Never used it again. I said, just talk to people. That was an amazing moment. That might, I think little things like that, you never know because it was hard. I would be there day and night 
there was only one person who would be at that firm later than me. I mean, I worked till 10, 11 o'clock at night. There was one kid, Jim Tallarico. If you're out there, my man, props. <laughs> Jim Tallarico. I could not, I mean, I don't care how late I worked. There goes Jim Tallarico. But everyone else is gone a long time ago. So the basic thing is like, I started talking to uh, uh, people as a broker. And I learned some things immediately about individual investors. In fact, one night I had a call with this woman, and I got open new account. I had the stock. It was a high-risk stock. And so I'm talking to her, and I'm filling out the form, and I'm asking her about her income. And she was on a very fixed income. So I said, you know what? I think this might be too high risk for you. So, okay, no big deal. Keep working. Come in the next morning, and I'm walking in, and my uh, the assistant manager says, Charles, I need to talk to you. So-and-so has filed a complaint. The woman filed a complaint. She was upset. She said, you wouldn't let her buy this stock. So that was my first insight <laughs> into people taking risk uh, in a way that just didn't make any sense. You know, but, and it, by the way, he ended up opening an account and keeping a, uh, the commission. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was able to see a lot of things. And one thing I also learned immediately was that my whole image of being of what a stockbroker was was immediately shattered. I grew up and I was I romanticized being a broker like, you know, you would do go home and read do all this research, you know, and find these great investments for your clients. And instead, you know, you would come in and they say, Okay, well these are the stocks that we have in inventory. And if you sell people these stocks, you make more money. I'm a knucklehead. I'm like, no, nah, I'm going to do the right thing. I found this company called Burl's Welcome. It's amazing. They created this thing called AZT for this new disease called AIDS. And I'm like, I'm going to do the right thing. And I was, I was killing it. I opened more new accounts my first full month in the business than anybody else in the office. And payday came around. I think I had like 400 bucks, and everyone else had thousands of dollars. They're getting limousines. They're getting cocaine. They're getting. They're not, oh my goodness! No, no. This is uh, the, this is the wall. This is Wall Street back in the, you know the 80s, right? I mean, it might be Wall Street today. Too, yeah. But. <laughs> A little more discreet, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm sitting there looking at everybody partying, like you know. I'm like, oh boy, I I, I barely had enough money to make it to the you know through the because uh, you only got paid once a month. So I did end up selling the crap, the crappy stuff. You know, and I just, I was really disenchanted with the broker side of it. Um, and I, you know, I, I grappled with that. And then I saved up just enough money. I said, I'm going to just do my own thing on the research side. So I started my own research firm and it was just Charles Payne. <laughs> and I, I would do the research at night, write the report at night. And then they had this big directory called the Red Book. It had every broker in America in there. So I would cold call the brokers. During the day, or I would call an office and say, can I speak to the broker of the day? And as it turns out, a lot of brokers were frustrated with their firm's research. But it was a long thing. But it was the hockey stick thing, too. It was like long. And then all of a sudden, it started to turn up. And I hired one person. Then I hired another person. I had an office in Harlem. I moved down to Wall Street. You know, got me a nice office in Wall Street. And, you know, was off to the races. And so now you're bringing that knowledge to the individual investor. You do it on air and you also do it in this book. And I think we're at a time where that individual investor has never been stronger. And the best way to make money is to just get in the market and get in young. You did that with your first stock as a teen. But something you point out in the book is that 49% of millennials are now out of the stock market. Right. They and get- that that raises alarms to me. Sure. These are uh, who got into the market in in, in, the, in 19, I mean, 19, 2020. 
uh, in the COVID era, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, if it's, you get in and it's fun. You're making money. It feels simple. It feels easy. I, again, I've seen all of these movies before. Uh, I saw it when the tech bubble, uh, during the tech bubble, and a company would just uh, affix .com to its name, and the stock would go crazy. Uh, you know, you had companies like Pets.com. I mean, people were sitting around tables. People were in bars, and they'd take a napkin and write on the back of a napkin, hey, what's a good business idea? Write it up, and a week later, go public. <laughs> I mean, it just all had .com. It was that kind of, it was that kind of a feeding frenzy. And it felt really, really uh, amazing. There was a company, the symbol was HBOC. People thought it was HBO. It had nothing to do with HBO. <laughs> but it was taken over, right? So people loaded up on it. It went up. And it was like, you know, there's an old saying, ignorance is bliss. Ignorance was not only bliss but profitable until it wasn't. And then when it wasn't, the same scenario, people were extraordinarily disenchanted, uh, took losses. And some of the losses, they had no choice. But some losses, they ended up selling good companies, bad companies. And they walked away. Uh, I saw it again in 2007, 2008. Uh, I, you know, to a lesser degree, you can see the public was kind of getting it a little bit. Mm -hmm. So where everyone sold after the dot-com era, I'd say about 50% sold during the global financial crisis. And, and then when the COVID came, uh, a lot of people, certainly people who I've been working with over the last 10, 20, 30 years, um, their first question was, what do I buy? So we did see a sort of shift, but the younger folks who came into the market, they had the same experience. You know, mm -hmm. felt really simple, felt really easy. You mm -hmm. know, and you bought the stock, you heard about it on the message board, and it went up. But now that they they're going down, uh, people are giving up. So there's no doubt that's a big audience I would like to reach. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but but it goes for everyone, and, and it's it's. I always say that the stock market is the greatest money-making machine in history. Uh, you just you do have to put some some elbow grease into it. It's not a second job, but uh, you know I see people put a lot of effort into a lot of different things that don't have the same payoff. And there's good reason too. You point out in the book to pay attention to the market now because you're calling out an industrial revolution. You say is upon us. You know, hearkening back to the 1920s. You're saying there are a lot of parallels now, and it sounds like you're saying it's driven a lot by longevity in life. And artificial intelligence? Artificial right? intelligence, uh, robots, big data. But in the 1920s, uh, the Roaring Twenties, we saw that was that was the greatest decade ever for the increase in life expectancies. We saw the uh, automobile go from being just uh, something for the rich to, to the masses. Mm -hmm. and, you know, one of the ironies, too, is that um, in the 1900s, if you look at 1900, in fact, the, the uh, automobile industry, 40% of automobiles that were sold were steam-powered. 35% were electric, and the rest were gasoline. And the reason, it's just, you know how they say history repeats itself. It's so amazing to me. But they started to build roads, really good roads. And so you can go three states over and visit Grandma. And then this guy named Ford created the Model T. Mass-produced it, sold it for 600 bucks. The electric vehicle was 2000 And guess what? The public picked the, the gasoline car. Uh, so you had that. Uh, you had, and the setup was very similar too. Coming out of COVID, of course, that was the Spanish flu back then. Uh, we also had World War One. You know, we had the war on terror here, which was very similar. We had a, they had a big, big time uh, recession, a big recession. This is just a few years after the creation of the Federal Reserve, which has been a failure from day one. You also had an anti-business president. 
they hiked taxes and kept hiking taxes. They were destroying the economy big time. But you bring in Calvin Coolidge, you lower taxes. So it was technology-driven, innovation-driven, longevity-driven. It was all the same parallels. We do need to call off this sort of war against business. It's, it, I don't know if we can get the same thing if we have a, 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 um, a White House that really is anti-business or has their own agenda, which, you know, this climate change agenda is, is just too – they're forcing things that just aren't ready right now. And it's, it's, and it's, it's, it's very expensive, and it's just – it's foolhardy. It's, it's hurting us. And, you know, you do have to – a big part of your philosophy – is research. You obviously, a big part of your career is research and a big part of your investment strategy is that. And so you do think when the government picks winners and losers or certain, you know, industries that they're going to promote, you wonder if someone else comes into power, does that all go away? So it does make that research so important. And if we talk about these investors that have left or, you know, we're making good money at the beginning of the pandemic, what research should we be doing today? What are we looking to understand so that we can take hold of this next technological revolution right. and, uh, you know, come out of it stronger? That's a great question. I, I, one of the things I, I – uh, one of my favorite chapters is a chapter on being more observant. I love that chapter. Yeah, being much more observant. Finding because, ideas. Finding ideas that are right in front of you. Yes. Uh, you know, Peter Lynch uh, famously said, buy what you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is cool, you know, uh, but sometimes we don't know we know. So I, I want to ask, can I jump okay. in? Okay. So – uh, you also dedicate this book to your grandchildren and kids, young people tend to drive trends, tend to have a lot of financial power, even if it's not them buying, it's their parents. So if you look at your grandkids today that this book is dedicated, what are you noticing in them that you're starting to research and maybe thinking of investing in? Well, my oldest granddaughter turned me on to Roblox even before it went public. So, you know, that was a good one for me right then. Absolutely. Um, I tell you who was really good, my my kids. My okay. My mom was good, too. My mom, I mean, I made a lot of money from TJ Maxx, from my mom, I from love, Burlington I'm Co a Maxxanista. Love TJ really? Maxx. Oh, my oh, yeah. goodness. So I go with my mom. This is maybe 20 years ago. She, she takes me to Burlington Co Factory and that whole treasure hunt thing that they do. I don't know if you've ever been there. Yes. But people spend hours there. And, like, but you if you if you go through, you know. If you're patient. Right. If you're patient, you're like, ah, look at this. Oh, I've been looking for this for three years. You know, and it's like the price is like eight bucks. Like, ah! you know, so it's like a treasure hunt. They, and they put the time in. You're like, oh, man, uh, I started going there. But like I said, these kids these days, man, they're just they're just a little bit too. Um, I, they had these have the Ralph Lauren shirts there. And like I would take all the kids. They were young. So they were cool. Eight, nine, ten. Then about 11, 12, they're like, oh, man, they call me Dookie. Dookie, we don't want to go. My, this, I'm talking about my sons, my nephews, my godkids. You should see me. I used to load them up, have nine of them with me, right? Oh, my God. They're like, oh, Dookie, we don't like it. Like, what? What's up? Because they moved the logo. The Ralph Lauren logo was small. Then they made it big. <laughs> they didn't want the little logo. I'm like, right, but those kidding. are the little things that, you know, like, are you consumer sentiment. Yeah. They I'm didn't like, like it. Not, I'm saving so much money, you know? But um, so, you, you know, that's it. In the book, I have a company called Toast. I think everyone probably has seen it. Everyone in this building probably has seen it. But just don't, don't they just don't recall. If you ever have eaten at Fresh & Co? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So you've seen Toast when you pay. Oh. That system is Toast. Oh, the debit payment. card. Yes. Or credit card payment. System. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. You uh, know, so I do a little thing on Toast. Like, uh, okay, I see this at this place. I've seen it in another place. Keeps popping up. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then, like, I, I walk people through. You see something, it's intriguing. Now what? 
Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know. I think I've heard you say uh, that, state this idea kind of like, whether you're invested or not, you're in the market. Right. So you can either invest in it and try to leverage it to your advantage. Right. Or you can be passive and let other people make money off of what you're buying right. yourself. Yeah, I mean, we all spend money, and and you know, most of that money uh, is going to go you know to the stock market. You know, I there was a, a report from uh, Stanford University that um, the COVID money, that 1.9 trillion of COVID, the last tranche from President Biden, that in the next five years, most of it will go to the one percent of the one percent. You know, mm-hmm. that's how you know. So it, as it starts to make this move, we all spend it somewhere. And then, you know, the, the shareholders eventually get that, you know, then they spend it. It just travels that way. And this is a way for us to get in front of that, right, mm-hmm. to try to get a bite of the apple. Uh, speaking of like Apple, for instance, no company in the world has created more shareholder wealth than Apple. Mm-hmm. I think it's $2 trillion. Hey, how many people listening to this have, have an Apple product and say they're not in the market? Mm-hmm. Well, not only in the market, but you helped create the greatest wealth. You were the the, the, the greatest wealth ma- money-making machine in history. This is the, the greatest part of it in history. In history, no company has created this much wealth. And guess what? Anyone could be a shareholder. This is a party that everyone's invited to. Everyone's invited to this. Mm-hmm. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I wanted to ask you, too, about kind of the emotions of investing because money is emotional. I think we don't talk about that a lot, especially on the business network. It tends to be about the financials um, and, you know, just uh, the markets. But there is an element about having money and feeling good about it, not having money and sometimes having shame around it. And I think you you pointed out in the book and in, in one of these quizzes, you guys got to check out this book because at the end of every chapter, <laughs> Charles has these really nice quizzes that ask you to engage in some of the content and you reflect on what you're learning. And one of the questions uh, on page 66 for anyone who's following along, you know, you ask, why is it important to understand and control your emotions when investing? I want you to, you know, take us through that and, and, and you know, answer that yeah, question from a, how you look at it. It's First of all, it's a fantastic, it's a great question. Um, and we kind of started to show off with that, those 49% of millennials who have gotten out of the markets. Mm-hmm. They've let their emotions uh, get them to get out of the greatest money-making machine in history. Uh, it's un, It's unavoidable. So it's a great topic. You're right. We should talk about it more because it's unavoidable, and uh, it's you're gonna you're gonna have to deal with it at some point. And you know, for me, <clears throat> there's a couple things. I always try to remember a why I'm doing this, and again, I'm not doing it just for me. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing it for for my children, their children. You know, I do things for people. Anonymously, I do things for people in my old community, my new community. I'm not doing it just for me, so I don't want to bail out. I want to. When I think, if you ever think about bailing out, that's one of the things to remember. When I was a broker, uh, there's no doubt in my mind. My daughter was one years old; uh, she was approaching one. And again, I was working 100% commission, and I finally started selling the crappy stuff. <laughs> and uh, so I remember when I got my first real check, and I went home. We had one can of food. In the, in the kitchen, and my daughter had been wearing the same pampers for almost 24 hours. Mm. They were soaking wet. That, that was, that's, how, that's how close we came. But that's who you do it for. That's who you do it for. So you don't bail out of this thing, right? It's not, it's, and, 
You know, and the way to control that, to help control it, is you got to go in there with a game plan. You know, when people say the stock market is like a casino, only if you make it a casino. If you buy a stock and it's got to go straight up, you know, where it's a dud, you know. I hate that about financial television. Oh, my goodness. We're not as guilty as that as some of these other networks out there that they come on, you know, and it's fast trading and it's quick money and all that kind of crap. Like, yeah, I just sold the stock during a commercial. Like, huh, what? Well, you know, you told me that started the show, you bought it. You know, it's like the show's not even over and the guy sold it, right? <laughs> it's like so. And that's why I hate it. That's why I was so animated during that whole uh, uh, meme thing. It wasn't about the meme stocks themselves, but being called dumb, you know, and, uh, yeah, listen, it's people, it's, it's hard. Everyone's going to be challenged by the stock market. So if you know what you own, it helps a lot. And I was like, you could equate it to someone who loves sports. Uh, you know, when Michael Jordan was in his prime, if they were, if there was uh, two minutes left in the game and his team was losing by 10 points and you had a chance to bet on it, you probably would. Why? They're losing. They're down. The clock's running out. You believed in the fundamentals. You believed that Michael Jordan in the fundamentals. If Tom Brady had, you know, two minutes to go and they were down by a touchdown and they were on their one-yard line and you had a chance to bet on it, you would. Why? Because you knew the team. So when you know what you own, it helps a lot. It helps a lot. In fact, you can get to the point where you want to see panic from here every now and then. Because panic creates opportunity. So you want to see people selling great stocks so you can buy them cheaper. That's where the real mm -hmm. big payoffs, by the way, come from. You want The windfalls in the market comes from buying stocks at extraordinarily depressed levels or holding them long enough that they can become like, 200, 300, 400 percent. But all of that means, uh, and I just referenced Apple. Apple's had years where it was down 50 percent. So all of this means that you have to understand what you own. And that's when I say put a little bit of elbow grease into it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I love that you got to that point of understanding what you own and being able to know when to hold on to it because it is incredibly emotional. People don't like to lose. They definitely don't like to lose money. And so you could have a big loss and exit or could go the other way, have a big loss and stubbornly I hold this on the hard way, by the way. try to hold on and think, yeah. hey, okay, it eventually will go up. I'll eventually make it back. That's There's two mistakes. Um, that mistake you're talking about, Madison, is called pride and ego. Yeah. Pride and ego. By the way, that mistake the experts make more than, than, than regular retail investors. Uh, it's just they come on the show and you just, you, you know, you're wrong. You, you know, the, 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 whatever you said in January is not working in February, March, April, May, June, July – but they're too brilliant. There's no way I can be wrong. The market's wrong, right? And uh, for the for I, I I don't see that as much with individuals. I see people just hoping, like it's a you know a hope and a prayer, because to your point, and it's psychologically proven, taking a loss, if you lose a thousand bucks versus making a thousand bucks, that loss it just it, the, making it doesn't even come close emotionally on the emotional meter. It doesn't even come close to the losing that. It's just so painful. It's bone-crushing mm -hmm. pain. And, and again, you know, sometimes you do have to take losses. And uh, But, you know, the key is, what I was saying is that I, I sold so many stocks in the beginning. They're down, yada, yada. And then I'd be sitting around you know, six months later, a year later, and all of a sudden I just see the ticker go across with a number next to it. Like, hold up. What the? Mm -hmm. Hold no way. And you pull up the chart. You say, oh, my God. That was a house. It just went by. I could have had that. I could have had a house. I could have. I mean, you just see it like, and it's like you know, you're just, you're just tapping away, doing your work. TV on. You look up. 
wait a minute, that's 200 bucks. I think I sold it too. <laughs> like, you know, it's so, and then you, so I started to go back and see where did I make these mistakes? Mm -hmm. And almost every time they were emotional. And if I had done just a little bit more work, a lot of times I would have held on. There's part of this too that's generational. I love that you are talking about creating generational wealth. That was on a podcast that you that you did uh, recently. Um, but it made me start thinking too about how you or how one person, me maybe, um, you can learn money habits from you know your prior generations for better and for worse. And I'm just wondering about what your thoughts are about part of this becoming an unbreakable investor is maybe recognizing money habits or preconceived notions that maybe it's time to break. Like, for example, I don't earn enough money to invest. Maybe that's a lesson that's been learned or maybe bad credit card habits. Do you have any thoughts about, you know, well, learning and, and learning what you need to break or bad habit? I, I think those go sometimes hand in hand, particularly with the younger generation. Um, so the, they just passed out the Nobel Prize for economics. And the woman who won this... Um, uh, has done extraordinarily extraordinary work on women in the workforce. And there's this diagram. I was joking with my team. I said, I'm going to start taking this everywhere I go on these on these interviews with millennials because it kind of shows the role of women. And, like, you know, it has this chart. And, like, one, they, you know, they've got the pitchfork, and they're out in the field working all day, and another one, they're carrying a bucket. You know, everyone's like, I can't draw the family. It's so tough. You know, everything costs so much. I'm like, uh, I'll just show them the chart. Listen, it, it's been a lot worse, okay? And, and so I never I never accept that people don't don't have enough money. You know, I mean, they do. They they, they you got to make a decision. You know, it's and it's tough because of this FOMO period right now, fear of missing out or mm -hmm. you only live once. And but you live for the most part, we're going to live a long time. You know, if you turn 65, um, there's a great chance you'll turn 85. And so. These days, we're healthier than people were back in the day at 65 or 85. We're more, you know, we want to do things and put off that trip to Cancun on a budget. And if you do it right, you can go the real way. You know, you can, you can stay at the, in the penthouse and not four of you in a room in the basement. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, you can do these things in a way that's really fantastic if you just kind of uh, wait. So I, I don't, I don't, I push back. Again, I was, I don't know, I was a, a teenager and I put $1,000 in Harlem in the 70s. I was, in, I was making money, you know, in the bodega. There was no such thing as minimum wage. I was making far less than that. But I would just save it. You know, I just saved my money and I just gathered it all up. So it can be done. I, I'm, I'm one of these people who pushes back on that. But it does require some fiscal discipline, which is a great habit to pass on from generation mm -hmm. to generation. You know, my mom, she, w she wanted to be an interior decorator. And, you know, whatever, things couldn't didn't work out like that. And, you know, she really never had those sort of opportunities, but she was really great at that. And so I and I remember I used to let her come, you know, she'd come and stay the summers with us. And she would do the, the garden. And also, um, you know, one day, one year I said, like, oh, you want to, you know, do the bathroom? And so I came home, and it was really beautiful. She did this amazing job. But then I'm looking at the corner of the, the, the sink, and there's a chip. So, oh man, they messed up. They they um they they brought the one with the, it's a little chip there. She said, "No, I bought it like that. I saved like a thousand dollars or something." So, that's, you know, so you know, listen, that's the way she grew up, right? 
And the flip side is my son would have done it the exact opposite. He you would have spent way more. Way more. Oh, are you right. kidding me? Way. Why not buy the yeah, nicest like, possible Yeah, I'm like, yeah, it looks great, Charles. What's up? There's the only problem. Pop, we still owe 10 grand on it. Like, you know, oh, he'd have man. been the exact opposite, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and some of that is just like, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. You know, to your point, it's a great point. Because I, when I talk about generational wealth, I don't talk about making a whole lot of money and making a stretch over generation over generation. I talk about the ethos. You have to create this mm-hmm. sort of uh, system of appreciation. Also, a focus on achievement. Mm-hmm. Achievement has to be central to that. Um, and, so it's tough. And But that, I mean, achievement and generational wealth and either continuing good learning habits. You know, you picked up certain things from your mom or learning new habits. It's all part of the dream. And that's a way to achieve the American dream. What is so unique about America is the opportunity here. Right. And and through that is investing. And I just want to ask quickly, you know, in the book, you talk about obviously investing in the stock market. But you also talk about alternative investments that, you know, how you break down your investments. And I'm just curious because the truth is we are at a time in the U.S. where the average family is struggling. And so maybe they don't have as much money that they would like, but you have to make choices. How much do I put in stocks? How much do I save for food? How much do I put towards a home? And specifically, you know, you say for you or for what you lay out that 15% of your investments should be in real estate. And I'm just wondering when we look at the stock market today and we look at the housing market today, you say 50% stocks, 15% real estate. Is that what every person should be thinking? Well, it changes. It's different. I mean, listen, we know people who've made fortunes in, in real estate, right, as real estate investors. Absolutely. Um, so um, uh, I think I think the notion of the house, though, as a great investment has lost some of its luster uh, over over the years. I mean, we're in a housing uh, boom now, but the boom, there's been some pretty strong boom-bust cycles in, in, in housing as well. Um it, that's just it kind of works for me, but I know I know people who kind of do it the other way. So I, I wouldn't say that there's nef, ne, a certain st- steadfast rule. What I love about st- the stock market is the liquidity factor. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that I own – I could own the greatest company in the world if it's publicly traded. I, I mean, I'd be in there with a lot of other people, but – but we could all I, but own I would it. I would be part owner of the greatest company in the world and 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 so I have a chance to go out there and whatever it's something it's great and I think it's great. Mm-hmm. I mean times have you left used the product and said I love this product I wish I thought of it. Well, you didn't think of it but at least you could be part owner. Right. Charles, you have a fantastic town hall coming out very soon alongside with the publication of this book Unbreakable Investor. When is the town hall? What can we expect? October 19th, um, live audience. I'm hoping standing room only. The last one, the audience was absolutely fantastic. Fired up. Great questions. They're already pouring in the questions. Um, and then I'd like to, I'm going to bring up three people uh, who've used the book. Uh, you know, and, and uh, I had a special book signing. It wasn't, the book wasn't 100% like us. <laughs> I did a book signing in Vegas a month ago. And so we put it together quickly without, you know, it's not all pretty and glossy and uh, the editing, I think there was like 1,200 typos. <laughs> so people like read it like, overnight. They came back the next day because I had two book signings. And, you know, and then uh, it was good because people had different um, uh, chapters that were their favorites. But this one guy's like, there's quite a bit, a lot of typos. I was like, yeah, no, no. <laughs> uh, so, so I'm just excited about people. Um, uh, I'm also going to try to have a special guest. Oh. Yeah. I'm, I'm, we're working on a special guest because. The behavioral analysis part of this can get very wonky. And what we were talking about, how do you 
contain your emotions. Yeah. So I'm working on a very special guest, somebody who's well-known. We got down to two people in their industry, and they've taken a, a fair amount of losses on their road to success. But I think it's something that we can identify with as, as people. Because, again, you know, the, the, sometimes the behavioral analysis folks, they get a little bit too wonky. And this is – listen, Wall Street is all about intimidation. They, you know, if we're going to be honest about this, they've spent 200 years making us think we can't do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. The best you can do is give somebody your money and let them do it for you because you can't you don't know the good companies. They do. Right? So uh, and there's so that Wall Street speak can sometimes be intimidating, sometimes deliberately, sometimes just out of force of habit. But I I'm trying to bring real life experience and, and, and just break down all the walls of intimidation when it comes to the market. Well, that sounds like a do not miss guest. Oh, if, yeah. And yeah. the good news for us is that we all know you, Charles Payne. And so we have someone to help us through all the weird acronyms and the charts and the graphs and the data to make us smarter so we don't have to rely on those people that are going <laughs> to charge us. Yes. Charles, this has been so much fun. Thank you for sitting down and talking about Unbreakable Investor and your upcoming town hall on October 19th. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, ladies. You're fantastic. we got to do this more often. You've been listening to the Charles Payne's Unstoppable Prosperity Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to this series and don't forget to rate and review. And keep listening so I can help put you on the path to unstoppable prosperity now. The world of business moves fast. Stay on top of it with the Fox Business Rundown every Monday and Friday. Listen to the Fox Business Rundown starting May 20th at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.